When it comes to the doctrine of the church, there are a lot of people who are off and, and uh, a lot of people who really are oblivious to the whole doctrine itself. And so they have learned wrong the first time. And, and so once we understand the mystery of the local church and how important it is, if we want to bring God more glory, it's got to be through the local church. And if we were to make an application to this, it's to be faithful within your church. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we were last time. This is kind of like a Bible college course, so if you never get a chance to take any classes at the Bible college, this is about as close as you're going to get to it. But we started a series last time, and we want to go line upon line, precept upon precept, but we want to talk about the church Jesus established. And you've got to listen carefully today because you're going, to, you're going to hear some stuff and you're going to say, where's pastor heading with this? Well, I'll guarantee you, this is going to all tie together by the time we finish this series. So here in Matthew chapter 16, we find Jesus Christ and his disciples together. And and in verse 13, when Jesus came unto the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, with this as a springboard, we're going to talk again about the church that Jesus established. Let's pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, dear Lord, to bless this time in thy word. We pray that you'd make it profitable and help us to listen carefully, that we would learn some very essential truths here that would enable us to serve you more faithfully through the local church. We pray now and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said many times it's easier to be taught right the first time than to be taught wrong and have to be retaught. I was thinking about that statement recently and my mind went back to when I was, I think about 15, maybe 14. But in Minnesota at that time, and I think it's still the same, you got your driver's license when you turned 16. And I wasn't 16 yet, but my dad, trying to get me uh, to where I'd you know, be ahead of the game, would let me drive the car. And so when he was in there with me and, and we were going from town to the lake, he'd let me drive. And, and uh, so I, I learned how to drive with my right foot on the gas and my left foot on the pedal. I just thought, hey, God gave you two feet, here's gas, here's stop, and uh, so that's the way it must be. So I did that for quite a while. And then when I was taking driver's instruction about a year or two later, uh, the... The teacher, the instructor, mentioned that that right foot is to be used for both. And I hope you do that, right? The right foot for both the gas and the braking because it frees up your left foot in case you have a straight stick. Well, I had the worst time trying to turn that thing around and get that right because 
I had learned wrong the first time. When it comes to the doctrine of the, the church, there are a lot of people who are off and, and uh, a lot of people who really are oblivious to the whole doctrine itself. And so they have learned wrong the first time. And, and really, that was my testimony. In fact, I was brought up thinking I was in the one true church. I kept hearing it from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper. When I got saved, I realized, no, that wasn't it because I had the wrong plan of salvation all those years. Certainly, it's not the church Jesus built. And if I thought today that I was not in a scriptural, genuine New Testament church, I would go find it. Because I know Christ started one. We read it a moment ago here. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter didn't start it. And it wasn't founded upon Peter. We saw that last time. Now, if you're going to believe right on the church, you're going to have to go against the grain, plain and simple. And a lot of people don't get it because the Bible calls it a mystery. A mystery is something that's tough to figure out. And in Ephesians 3 and verse 3, Revelation, he made known unto me the mystery, here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. We've talked a little bit about that word sama in the Greek body, speaking of the body of Christ or a reference to the church. And in verse 3, he mentions this mystery. And in verse 6, he tells us what it is. And as always, Paul puts a lot of stuff in between. But what he was driving at is the mystery is the church. And it's mysterious to many because they don't comprehend it. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and verse 32, Paul said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so there are a lot of people in the realm of Christendom that don't get it. There are a lot of Baptists who don't understand the mystery of the local church. If you do, you're in the minority. Somebody says, well, if we're in the minority, then we must be wrong. No, truth is normally in the minority. We need to understand that. In fact, back in the days of old, in the days of Israel, there was only a handful of people that were doing right. In fact, in the days of Elijah, God told him in 1 Kings 19.18, Yet have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. Think about this. There were hundreds of thousands of people in Israel at that time, maybe even millions. But there were only 7,000. That's a pretty small percentage, isn't it? That's a minority, those who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so if you're in the minority, first of all, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, you're on the narrow road. And that's the one going to heaven. The broad one is on the road, is the road to hell. And so if you're on the narrow road or if you're in the minority, normally you're on the winning side spiritually. And it doesn't matter what every television evangelist says about the church. In fact, they'll use the expression, oh, you know, the, the church is all believers. It doesn't matter what the worldwide famous evangelist has to say or the radio preacher or the, the bookstore. In fact, you won't find one book in any local Christian bookstore that will tell you what we're going to talk about in this series. That's how in the minority you are. But notice in our text, in verse number 18, Jesus Christ is talking and I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ started a church. He is the Petra, the boulder, the rock. Peter was the pebble, and he was making a comparison there. And he said upon himself, this rock, he said, I will build my church. 
He goes on and he tells that group of men, I'm, I'm going to give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He passes some great authority on to the local church there, which has been passed on to us in the 21st century. Now last time we talked about the patron of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. He's our founder. We talked about the promise of the church. He said, I will build my church. We talked about the perversion of the church and the fact that the devil has done a lot of church planting over the years. And Jesus said, not everything that, that has been planted has been planted by my heavenly Father. They'd be the blind leading the blind, and they're both going to fall into the ditch. And then we talk fourthly about the presumption. I won't go into that. But as we talk once again about the church Jesus established, we see first of all what I call the matter of continuation. The matter of continuation or perpetuity. The fact that the church is still going. Now there are a lot of churches around. In fact, somebody said, why does there have to be so many churches? Why don't they just all get together? You ever heard that? I've heard that. Why all these churches? Why don't they just all get together? Well, that would be impossible. You know why? Because they don't all believe the same thing. And in Amos 3 and in verse 3, it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And so you have to be on the same page doctrinally. Otherwise, you're going to have to lower everything to the lowest common denominator to say, okay, now we all agree. And of course, we can't be uh, true to the Scriptures and still do that. In fact, I'm glad there's, there's different churches by different names because it really identifies what they believe. Plain and simple, you know their doctrine. It, it identifies their doctrine. And if you hear the word Baptist, normally you're talking Bible, okay? Bible doctrine and nothing else. The title tells me what they believe. Now, there are a lot of churches out there. But Jesus only started one. Plain and simple. Notice in verse 18, He said in the middle of the verse, And upon this rock I will build my churches? No. Notice it's in the singular. Church. Jesus Christ only started one kind of church. And furthermore, He said in verse 18, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells me that the church is still around. He started one, and it is still around. And again, he promised it perpetuity. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. We see there this matter of continuation. If you look in Matthew 28, you'll find where Christ once again was with his disciples, same group, minus Judas, and he's gathered them together. He's about to ascend up to heaven, and again, he promises them perpetuity. This matter of continuation. Notice he uh, tells them in verse 18 of Matthew 28, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He says in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So again, we see this matter of continuation. He said, you're going to always be around, and I'll be with you until the end. Now, I think most of us here have heard of the Latter-day Saints. It's a longer name for the Mormon church. And it means just that. They claim to be the Latter-day Saints. If you study their doctrine, they say that the church went out of existence, and they reinstituted it. And it's a long story how they claim that happened. 
But what they do is they look at how corrupt the church of Rome had become. And it, and it was bad. And they said, well, that certainly was apostate, and so that couldn't have been the church. And so it must have gone out of existence, and Joseph Smith, their founder, supposedly reinstituted it. But the truth of the matter is, there were millions of of Bible-believing Anabaptists that were being persecuted during that corrupt time in the church of Rome, and they come from our forefathers, plain and simple. There were victims that were being martyred. Who were they? Well, they were those who were part of a Scripture New Testament church. We find this quote from the Catholic Cardinal Hoseus, and he said, were it not for the fact that the Anabaptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with the knife during the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater than all reformers. Now here's a quote that was made in the 1500s, and Cardinal Hoseus was, was one of the main players in the Council of Trent, kind of like the Vatican I and II of old back in the 1500s, and so he was a, a very important man. And notice the comment he makes that really put the Baptists back into the years of the 300s, although they go back further than that. But he said, were it not for the fact that the Anabaptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with the knife during the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater than all reformers. Yeah, our our forefathers were being put to death during that time. Here's a uh, quote by a, a Dutch Reformed historian by the name of Dermont. And he said, we have now seen that the Baptists, who were formerly called Anabaptists, have long in history received the honor of that origin. On this account, the Baptists may be considered as the only Christian community which has stood since the days of the apostles and as a Christian society which has preserved pure the doctrine of the gospel through all ages. Now, I can show you a bunch of quotes like this. We'll look at more later. Not one of them by a Baptist that claimed the Baptists can trace their roots back to the first century. Now, last time we saw that Jesus Christ founded a church, uh, Moses didn't found a church, Mary didn't found a church, Muhammad didn't found a church, uh, Peter didn't found a church, uh, Paul didn't found a church. The church was founded by Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church. And he promised it would always be around. We see this matter of continuation. It doesn't need to be restored. It didn't need to be recreated. It didn't need to be reinstituted. Uh, it's always been around or Christ lied. He said, I'll build my church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. There was a church in Jerusalem that spun off and started church in Antioch, that spun off and started churches in Macedonia and Achaia and spread over into Europe and from Europe to America and from the East Coast to the Midwest. And today we have a Fargo Baptist Church. You say, well, Pastor, can you, can you trace this church to another, to another, to another, to another, to another? Well, there are some who claim that it can be done, and maybe it can. Although many of the records were lost during the Dark Ages. But I know this, it really doesn't matter whether you can trace it all the way back or not, because Jesus Christ promised He would build His church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So we see, first of all, this matter of continuation. But secondly, let's talk about the meaning of church. Now, last time I gave you a little Greek lesson, okay? You're all Greek scholars now, and and, uh, you're ready to get your doctorate and so on. But the word church in the Bible is the Greek word ekklesia. And by definition, it simply means a called-out assembly of people. A group of people gathered together. Now, there are those who teach that the church means all Christians. And that uh, the church is all believers worldwide. No, that's the family of God. In fact, the family of God is all Christians, past, present, and future. All believers here and even up in heaven. 
In Ephesians 3.15, it mentions of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the family of God, not the church of God. The family of God is all believers. From the time of Adam up to now, that's what we call the family of God. But the very word church cannot mean this big family everywhere because a church has to assemble in one place. It's a called out assembly. It's a beckoned assembly of people who are brought together. And there is no such thing as some universal church, some invisible church, some church symbolically. It's got to be an an, an assembly. Otherwise, I'd be preaching to empty pews right now, right? And so there's no universal, invisible church. It is a group of people gathered together. But mankind or theologians have perverted the word church down through the centuries, and now most people are off on it. You know, there are a lot of words that have been perverted. There was a time when I was growing up when when you said somebody's gay, that meant they were happy. And in the Flintstones, remember, we'll have a gay old time. They said it at the end of the theme song. We'll have a gay old time. You wouldn't want to have that today, right? Because the name has been changed. The, the word has been changed. The word baptize now can mean sprinkling or pouring or, or anything else because the meaning of the word baptizo, which means to submerge or plunge or put under the water, has been changed over the years. By the way, the Greek Orthodox baptized by immersion. Now, they're very liberal in their doctrine. They're, they claim to be Protestants and so on. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if anyone ought to understand the Greek language, it's the Greek Orthodox. They know that much that baptism means to submerge or to plunge or to put under. Of course, words like repent can mean a New Year's resolution or uh, turning over a new leaf and not really what the Bible means it to mean. And so it is with the word church. Church over the years has been used so loosely that it just means some universal thing that makes up all the believers. But words mean something. I'm glad they mean something. If I had a headache and I went to a pharmacist and asked for aspirin, I wouldn't want them to give me arsenic, would you? I mean, you, you want to get the word right because words are important. And, and spiritually speaking, words are very, very important. Now, the word church, or the Greek word ekklesia, appears 115 times in our Bible. 115 times. And ecclesia comes from two Greek root words, ek, uh, or ek, ek, meaning, meaning called, and, or, or out, I should say. And the word, the word ecclesia or kaleo, meaning called. And, and Greek words are normally backwards. So ecclesia means to call out, to beckon, to summon a group of people to get together. That's all it means. To summon or beckon a group of people who gather together voluntarily and meet together. And the word ecclesia, a called out assembly of people, doesn't even have to be uh, a religious group, a Christian group. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 19, if you would, and let me show you an example of where the word ecclesia is translated, not church, but assembly, and not a religious assembly at all. It's actually talking here about a mob. Paul's in Ephesus and a riot breaks out. Happened a lot wherever Paul went. And so here's this, this riot taking place, this mob assembled together. Notice in Acts 19 and in verse 32. It says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the ecclesia was confused. And the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. In other words, what are we doing here? What's, what's going on? Why are you here? I don't know. They didn't know. But notice the confusion here. 
But the word assembly is the exact same Greek word, ecclesia, as translated in your Bible church. You can go home and look that up in the Strong's Concordance or online. It's the exact same word, but it's not talking about a church at all. It is talking about a called out assembly, though. Notice verse number 39 here. Uh, It says, But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful ecclesia. Assembly. Again, same word, but not translated the word church here. But it means the same thing, a called out assembly. Notice verse 41. It says, And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly, the ecclesia. So I just want you to follow here. It's very important that I kick this uh, universal, invisible church theory uh, in the shins of plenty here so that you understand that's not what the word church means at all. As long as we're in Acts, turn back to chapter 7, if you would. Let me show you another example of where this word ecclesia is used here and not really even specifically referring to a church like this. In Acts chapter 7 and in verse number 38, it says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him, in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Now, the lively oracles is talking about the law, the Ten Commandments specifically. And in verse 38, he there, that's Moses. He's mentioned in the previous verse. This is he, Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel or the messenger, that's the Lord, who gave unto him the law. Now, notice here, it's not talking about a Christian church like this. But it is talking about an assembly. And so the word ecclesia is a proper translation here. It's an assembly. This is he that was in the assembly, the ecclesia in the wilderness, that is with all those three, four million Jews, with this angel, this messenger that spake unto Moses. So here it's not even talking about a New Testament church because this is a reference to something that took place in the Old Testament. But it is, it is a proper use of the word church, ecclesia. So I just want you to see that the word church can only be an assembly or a group of people called together. Now three times out of that 115 times, it's uh, translated assembly. But you say, well, what kind of assembly is it? Well, we know it's a Christian church because Jesus put the word my next to ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia, my assembly. Now we're talking about a New Testament church. 92 times out of 115 times... It's talking about a specific church someplace, obviously. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul says, under the church of God, which is at Corinth. It'd be like him writing a, an epistle to the church of God, which is at Fargo. It's talking about a specific church there. Paul knew nothing, by the way, about a universal, invisible church. Uh, he started local churches. He wrote to local churches. Now, there are several times when the word church in the Bible Uh, seems to refer to something universal, something generic. But let me show you what what it's talking about. Here's one in Ephesians 5.25. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now it sounds like it's talking about all, you know, this universal, invisible church someplace. Christ loved the church. But Paul here is using the word church in a general sense, in a generic sense. You say, well, that doesn't sound like it's a local church. Well, we talk like this all the time. Uh, Let me give you an example. The home is in trouble in America. 
Which home? Are we talking about one huge home that everybody lives in? No, we're obviously talking about individual homes across America. And when we say the home is in dire straits across our land, we're still talking about individual homes, aren't we? We use this kind of language all the time. The Ford is a great car. Well, which one? You mean one out in the parking lot someplace? No, we're just talking about the Ford in general. But we're not talking about one huge Ford someplace that everybody drives, you know? We're talking about individual cars. And so when it says Christ also loved the church, it's talking about it in in a generic, general sense, but it's still talking about individual churches. Jesus loves the institution of the church, plain and simple. Look in Acts chapter 9. Now you're just a page away or so. Flip over to Acts 9 and notice this is the other way of saying church without the uh, E-S although it's added, in verse 31 of Acts 9, it says, Then had the churches rest throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria and so on and so forth. So we're still talking about a bunch of churches, but the institution of the church nonetheless. Romans 16.16 says, The churches of Christ salute you. There are a lot of churches around Rome. And so here we, we find the word church used generically, but it's still talking about individual Churches. Now, there is one verse in the Bible that is uh, misinterpreted quite often. It's found in Hebrews 12.23. It mentions the general assembly and church of the firstborn. The word assembly there is not translated ecclesia, by the way. It's a different word. But it mentions this general assembly. It's talking about those in heaven and the church of the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So the church of Christ is what it's talking about. But it's not talking about some uh, all-over general assembly at all. It's talking about two different things here. The general assembly up in heaven and the church of the firstborn. And in context, if we had time to look at it, it's talking about how at salvation you become a partaker of this uh, bigger heavenly family, but also, if you're in a scriptural church, the church of the firstborn, uh, a New Testament church. Evidently, Paul was referring to there. So he's talking basically about two memberships, the family of God, the church of God. So as we review, ecclesia, as far as the meaning of church, is simply a called out group of people. You say, well, pastor, you're kicking it to death. What's the big deal about it? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But if ecclesia or church means a called out group of people, then why do 99% plus of all Protestants believe in some universal, invisible church made up of all believers? It really goes back to a fellow by the name of Constantine in, in around the 325 to 350 era right in there, who, who basically um, started something that evolved into the Church of Rome. Gregory the Great was the first pope in 590 A.D., And about that time, and even a little bit before, from roughly 500 A.D. up to 1500 A.D., the world plummeted into what's known as the Dark Ages. It's spiritually dark. In an awful time for Anabaptist forefathers, they they were put to death by the millions during that time. Well, there was a lot of corruption in the Church of Rome, and in 1517 it got so bad that a German monk by the name of Martin Luther said, we've got to reform this thing. He put his 95 grievances on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. The Pope wanted his hide, excommunicated him. By 1520, the Lutheran Church was up and running. But Luther had a problem because for a millennium over already, 
the church of Rome had been claiming to be the one true visible church. So now he spun off it. Where does that put him? Well, he had to come up with something, if I might put it that way. So he said, well, no, the church is, is universal. And that's what the word Catholic means, by the way. But it's invisible. It's just made up of all believers. That's the church. And of course, from that, you got Henry VIII in 1536 starting the Church of England and, and others spinning off and the, the Protestant Reformation underway. And the heir of the universal invisible church is off and running. You say, well, the church is all believers. No, that's the family of God. It's important that you understand the difference. By the way, I'm not a Protestant. And uh, you say, well, wait a minute, you must be. No, I'm not. Because my forefathers were around long before the Protestant Reformation, long before the Church of Rome. In fact, they were protesting us way back yonder. Again, it's easier to be taught right the first time than taught wrong and have to be retaught. So we see the matter of continuation, we see the meaning of church, and then finally, let's talk about the magnitude of this concept here. Why, why is this so important that we understand what the church is all about? Well, first of all, the universal invisible church promotes unfaithfulness, probably unknowingly, but the reason the devil loves that doctrine, a false one, is because it promotes unfaithfulness. You say, well... How's that? Well, if the church is everywhere and everybody and it's universal and it's invisible and it's not a called out assembly of people, then let's just skip church. I mean, why be here today if ecclesia doesn't mean an assembly of people? See what I'm saying? And the Bible says, however, in Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Exhorting one another to be faithful in attendance. We need to be in the house of God. We're not right with God when we skip church, when we do something else. And so the universal invisible church promotes, hey, why attend? If the church is everywhere and everybody, just stay home. Now secondly, it also tells you to basically not have to tithe. You can just skip tithing. Think about it. If the church is everybody, that makes you the church. So if you're the church, you tithe to yourself, basically. Just keep your tithe. Plain and simple. Well, Malachi 3.10 says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat or provision in mine house. Notice that house there. This is Old Testament, but it's talking about a central location where the Jewish people gathered and assembled and brought the tithe to. It's called the storehouse. The storehouse. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16.2 Bible says, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. In the verse after, in the verse before this, it's talking about giving. And it mentions the New Testament church here, meeting there, assembling on that first day of the week, and laying by him in store. There's that New Testament storehouse, the local church. I believe, unapologetically, that the tithe belongs in the local church. Now, these are some things we'd never think of. But if you believe in some universal, invisible church, why attend? Why give to a local church? Thirdly, why serve through a local church? I mean, if you're the church, if the church is everywhere, if the church is everybody, then just do your own thing. Be a parachurch organization or or go out there and be a freelancer, that kind of thing. But my Bible says in Ephesians 3.21, speaking of God, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So if I want to bring glory to the Lord, how should I serve? Well, in through and by 
a local church. This verse says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. First century, 21st century. World without end. Amen. Now, fourthly, if you believe in the universal invisible church theory, you're going to miss out on God's premium. Let me put it this way. You're going to settle for the, the bronze or silver instead of the gold. You know, Dwight Moody did a great work in this nation many years ago. I have his autograph in my office. But he was not part of a Scripture New Testament church, and in my opinion, he settled for the bronze. Or we could talk about Billy Sunday, preached a crusade in this town, but settled for the silver or the bronze. See, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So where is the pillar and ground of the truth? It's a local church. In fact, the Bible also says that the manifold wisdom of God is given to the local church. And, and you, you're going to find all kinds of doctrinal error with, within extra, uh, extra biblical things outside of, of Scripture New Testament churches. Churches that don't believe in a millennium, are millennialists. Churches that believe in open communion. We could talk about dozens of things. And it's, it's very common to see them go astray in their doctrine if they're not aligned with a local church because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. There's just something about it that helps us to keep our doctrine straight, plain and simple. And if we get a little off track here at the beginning, we're going to be way off track out here. So it's really important that we are square on our doctrine, and, and there's something about the church that helps us to keep that doctrine square. You know, it's so important that we understand the local church because it's, it really lays a foundation for absolutely everything else. And, and if the foundation of something is not square, it's going to be off as your building. I uh, remodeled a house, my first house on a lake when I was, I think, 20 years of age. Bought a home and, and added on to it. And uh, didn't really understand how you s- squared up an addition by measuring corner to corner. I just got myself a real straight board and eyed it in and, and dug my foundation out here and, and went from there and, and it was out of square, just a little bit. But I fought with that thing the whole way up. I mean, the sheetrock was crooked, the closets were crooked, everything was crooked in it because I got off at the beginning. And a, a foundation is so important. The New Testament church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, there is a lot of error that comes out of believing in the universal invisible church, and, and, and we're going we're to be talking about some of those things in the weeks to come. Um, how, how they say it was started on the day of Pentecost, it was not. It was started by Holy Ghost baptism, and uh, they, they say, and it was not. Uh, into a universal invisible church, it was not. They even have John's baptism back in the Old Testament trying to square everything off. It's kind of like that foundation. Once it's off, everything on top of it is off. So let's get the foundation straight. By the way, the Universal Invisible Church not only promotes uh, skipping church and skipping tithing to the church and uh, not serving through the church and settling for God's second best, but it's also something that leads to ecumenicism. And I don't have time to get into that. I'll do that later. But all these churches coming together. You say, well, what if, what if it's universal and local? It can't be both. Because Ephesians 4.4 4 says there is one body, speaking of the church, and one spirit and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and so on. It's talking about things there's only one of. And when it comes to the church, there's only one kind of a church, and it's, it's visible and it's local. So if it's this important that we understand this doctrine, 
then we better be listening. We better be getting this down so that we can build on top of this foundation. The last time we hear from Jesus Christ in the Bible, he's addressing seven churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor. In Revelation 1 and verse 11, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Notice, decades had passed, by the way, since he had ascended up into heaven, but his eye is still on these local churches. He could have named a bunch of them, but he names these seven. Decades later, still working through them. And so once we understand the mystery of the local church and how important it is, uh, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We're going to be accountable to be more faithful. If we want to bring God more glory, it's got to be through the local church. And if we were to make an application to this, it's, it's to be faithful within your church. Because Jesus Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, the Bible says, shed his blood for it, Acts 20:28. The Bible says in Hebrews 3, 5, that Moses verily was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But that's Old Testament. God's house in New Testament times, the age of grace, is the local church. And so we see the matter of continuation, the meaning of church, and the magnitude of the concept, and the application of it all It's required in a steward that he be found faithful. By God's grace, as we understand the importance of the church, may we be more faithful to it. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.